Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Hear now God's Word. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and all evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Amen. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, and normally I would preach four Advent sermons. Uh, but I have decided to make an exception this year. As I've been preaching through the letter to the Ephesians, we are currently at the end of chapter 4. And I think there are two or three more sermons left to finish this chapter, which would be a good stopping place. Moreover, since I believe that this is an urgent topic for several, if not for many, I think it is not only useful but also very important for us to address these issues. In light of what I've just said, I hope that you will give this your undivided attention. Jesus came to save you, which means he also came to change you. In that sense, this is an Advent sermon. If I had to select a few verses in the Bible that, if applied would transform every marriage and every family and every other human relationship for the better, they would be Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. If, in fact, the goal for us as image bearers of God is to live in loving communion with one another, then good communication is essential. The Word of God, of course, has the power to create. It also has the power to destroy. God's Word is powerful, and we are created in the image of God, and therefore our words have similar effects. What we say and how we say it will either promote communion or else it will rip it apart. Our words either build up or they tear down. This part of the text flows out of the previous admonitions that the Apostle has given us to stop lying, to speak the truth, to be angry and sin not. And so I plead with you this morning to listen carefully to what God has to say to you, to dig deep, if you will, husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters, this is speaking to you. And if you can learn to act like Christ here, then you will have not only made immediate progress, you will make generational progress. Your children and your children's children will reap enormous benefits. These Christian behaviors will become generational habits. If Ephesians 4:29 through 32 becomes 
your personal con- rule of personal conduct, your happiness will be multiplied, and you will truly become a blessing to everyone around you. You will become an object of admiration. People will look up to you. They will speak well of you. All you have to do is this. Now you see, you've been made in the image of God. God made you unlike the animals to use words, speech. Those words were originally intended to be used to glorify God. To be a reflection of who you were as His image bearers. Speech is one of God's greatest gifts to men. Now your words are still a reflection of who you are. But sin has altered who you are along with what you say and how you say it. The Bible is clear as to the power of our words. James 3, which we read this morning in our call to worship, or our reading of the law, excuse me. Indeed, if we put bits in horses' mouths, they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Look also to ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the, ho- the course of human nature and is set on fire by hell. That's pretty strong language designed to cause us to focus on the importance of this issue. And I'm telling you, it is the critical issue at your house, in all your relationships. The old man, the unbeliever, uses his speech to express his unbelief, to express the idea that he is the most important person. The new man in Christ uses his speech to express what? The two great commandments, love for God and love for our neighbors. You see, words are a form of behavior. When we speak, we're doing something. Words, somebody, well, I was just talking, or I, I, you know, I didn't mean anything by it. Words are a reflection of who we are. They reveal our hearts. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so speech itself can be characterized as either good or evil, doing good or doing evil. We can no more take back words spoken any more than we can take back acts committed. Words and acts can be forgiven, but they cannot be recalled. And so when we say something, and we later say, I didn't really mean that, we see something of the incongruity between our hearts, our words, and our actions. When you deliver your corrupt and harsh words. I want you to think of the idea of spewing something gross upon all the people around you. Or punching somebody in the face. 
Paul begins here, as he does in his pattern in this chapter, with the negative, then the positive, and then the reason. The negative, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Pretty straightforward. The Greek word for corrupt, sapros, and it means rotten, putrefied, unclean. We might say it's nasty, ugly, foul, profane, or obscene words. These are the words of death because they separate, they kill. Our problems in this area often start with selfishness and pride. I can guarantee you that whatever conflicts you had with anyone this past week, pride and selfishness were issues. Our problems in this area often start here. Prideful words flow out of a person who can't break off a quarrel because they're generally filled with the idea that their own opinion must prevail. And we often contribute to strife and to conflict when we have difficulty of seeing another person's point of view. We need to be careful about, as the Bible says, being wise in our own estimation, in our own opinion. And when we're self-absorbed, we are sure to create conflict. When you lose your temper, when you yell, when you scream, or when you swear, or when you say harsh and hurtful words, you've not only just lost the argument, You've not only just made a fool of yourself, you've also inflicted lasting damage on others, usually the very people you say that you love. Such corrupt words, both their content and their tone, destroy relationships. The very people that you say you would die for, you rip to shreds with your words. Because in that moment, in that outburst, you're the only one that matters. And if you could see yourself in that moment, you would see a very selfish, insecure person. You see, people who are right don't need to shout. Our responses to people and situations, again, are manifestations, not just of what we do, but who we are. And when we're angry, our character slips out. Paul Harvey used to say, your slip is showing. Harsh or abusive speech always adds fuel to the fire. As Proverbs 15.1 instructs us, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When anger is present, the situation becomes intensified with these harsh responses. Proverbs 12:18. there is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. That's the idea here in Ephesians 4. Psalm 37, 8 calls us to refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And Proverbs 15:18 warns that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger 
quiets contentions. These Proverbs are not simply quaint sayings. They are the Word of God. They are true. In fact, if you have a problem with this any, at any level, and you haven't memorized verses like this, don't tell me that you're struggling with anger or with controlling your mouth. You're not struggling at all. If you've got the Bible and you've got the remedy and you've got the Word of God to fight the temptation and you haven't taken the time to embed it in you, to let the Word abide in you, don't tell me you're struggling. Say, I've given up. I've caved in. I'm a slave to that sin. You can say that because that would be true, but you're not struggling. God's given you what you need to deal with this. And while God created us to use our mouths to praise Him, man in his rebellion finds pleasure in using our mouths to do the very opposite. For example, our culture is filled with words that are dirty, nasty, foul, lewd, vulgar, profane, obscene, and blasphemous. Sin has corrupted our words because sin has corrupted our hearts. And so it's now cool to be crude. It's a public demonstration that God or nobody else is going to tell me what to do or say. It is a defiance against his authority. The word of God says that if you're in Christ, listen to what the text says, that not one single corrupt word should ever come out of your mouth. Zero. In fact, Paul says, it's an interesting word here, that no corrupt word should proceed out of your mouth. So imagine that in the heat of the moment you thought of something. And now it's made its way from your brain to your tongue. And there it is right at your lips. Stop. Don't let it out. Close your mouth. And by the way, this has nothing whatsoever to do with what the other person is doing or saying. Zero. This has everything to do with you. Men love to take legitimate words out of their context. They love to say hell, take hell and damnation and God and Jesus Christ and use them in a vain or a casual way. Let me note, I am fully aware that the Bible sometimes uses curse words and other words uh, in the context of righteous communication. I've actually heard professing Christians try to argue to be able to use some of the vilest language you can imagine because they found somewhere in the Bible that some prophet used that to, to bring judgment upon people or to condemn sin. Actually, had a young man, a professing Christian, not in this church, in a letter this signed off to his pastor, F you, or F off. And then justify, try to justify that, because 
Well, the Bible uses some rough language, too. That's called twisting the scriptures to your own destruction. In their original context, some of the words, some of these words like hell and damn and Jesus Christ, these are words that unnerve an unbeliever. And so by placing them in a lighter context, he hopes to get comfortable with these unnerving words. Other words corrupt and mock that which God calls holy and good. Sex and family and authority. While some words are simply base and nasty. Such expletives have become so common that we have grown accustomed to them. But I want to tell you something. God is still offended every single time he hears them. Little men with little vocabularies constantly reveal their smallness. Even some professing Christians profane their baptisms with careless and corrupt words. We substitute words. We're going to Christianize swear words. We're going to use heck and shoot and gosh and friggin' and some kind of Christian substitute for foul and blasphemous language. But Ephesians 5, later in this book, is going to say, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolishness nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. I shared this several years ago, but I want to read it again. Two quotes from the great Methodist preacher, George Whitfield. He says, The damned devils, the damned souls of men in hell, may be supposed to rave and blaspheme in their torments because they know that the chains wherein they are held can never be knocked off. But for men that swim in the river of God's goodness whose mercies are renewed to them every morning, and who are visited with fresh tokens of his infinite, unmerited, loving kindness every moment. For these favorite creatures to set their mouths against heaven and to blaspheme a gracious, patient, all-bountiful God is a height of sin which exceeds the black, blackness and impiety of devils and hell itself. He continues, If these things be so, and the sin of profane swearing, as has been in some measure shown, is so exceedingly sinful, what shall we say to such unhappy men who think it not only allowable, but fashionable and polite to take the name of God in vain, who imagine that swearing makes them look big among their companions, and really it is a piece of honor to abound in it. But alas, little do they think that such a behavior argues the greatest degeneracy of mind and foolhardiness that can possibly be thought of. For what can be more base than one hour to pretend to adore God in public worship and the very next moment to blaspheme his name, indeed, such a behavior from persons who deny the being of God, if 
such fools there be, is not altogether too much to be wondered at. But for men who not only subscribe to a belief of a deity, but likewise acknowledge him to be a God of, a God of infinite majesty and power, for such men to blaspheme his holy name by profane cursing and swearing, and at the same time confess that this very God has expressly declared he will not hold him guiltless, but will certainly and eternally punish without repentance him that takes his name in vain, is such an instance of foolhardiness as well as baseness that can scarcely be paralleled. Since the Bible teaches us that corrupt words of any kind are extremely offensive to God. And since they are so commonly used around us, then it is our Christian duty to show our disapproval and to seek to stop such vile behavior where we have the opportunity. And certainly no such words should proceed out of our mouths or, by the way, from our keyboards or keypads, not, not even BAMF, because abbreviating filth is still filth, even if your mother and father don't know what it means. We owe this duty both to God and our children, since we love them. We're obligated to honor and defend the name of God and his word, and we must likewise seek to prevent the ruin of our neighbor. Perhaps there is some repentance that needs to take place in your heart and at your house. Now the positive. No corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification? Our speech must always seek the good of others. Even when we're angry or having a disagreement, our words should turn the fire down. It should contribute to a solution to the problem. And if your words cannot do that, then don't use any words at all. Now, there is a place for disagreement, for argument, for rebuke, for correction, but even these words should be aimed at building up, not tearing down. Always showing respect to one another, husbands and wives, parents and children, children to parents, siblings to siblings. If these words are not given in, with respect, they should not be given at all. The place where you can use your words to bless the most is with the people who are closest to you. The ones within the sound of your voice. And of course, that would mean it starts at your house with your family. It's easy to be nice to the public, isn't it? To talk to strangers nicer sometimes than we do to the very people we live with. I think there's an, a presumption that, well, they have to live with me. I can say what I want. I can act how I want. They'll, they'll still take me back. I talk to a stranger like that and probably get punched. And so I want to set before you a rather simple lesson on how to improve the happiness in your marriage, at your house, at your place of work, and for that matter, the whole world. You have what it takes to do this, if you will. 
In fact, if you would go out of your way to be sure and use three or four of these words I'm about to give you each day, if you aren't already, there will be dramatic improvement in your life in a very short period of time. When other people use these words that bless toward you, they make you a happier and better person. And when you use these words that bless others, you will not only make them happier and better, but your own words will bounce back and bless you as well. So I'm going to go through this list really fast. Try to. I think I have nine of them. Words of gratitude. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. The simple expression of gratitude is powerful. Thank you for... You fill in the blank. I appreciate what you did for me. I noticed what you did for others. Thank you. To be thankful is a state of being. To give thanks is an expression of what you are. A thankful person. To give thanks is a true gift to others. So first, be thankful. And second, say so. Second, words of praise. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-4 We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your works of faith, labor, of love, and patience, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Words of correction and criticism seem to come easy because any fly can find a sore. And so we need to be on the lookout for things to praise. Words of praise go beyond thanks. They are the declaration of someone's glory. And since everyone's made in the image of God, there's bound to be some glory in each person that needs to be praised. Third, words of edification from our text today. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification to to build up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So the goal is to build people up, to make them stronger, to make them more Christ-like. These are the words that help people do more and be better. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We then who are strong ought to bear with the weakness of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. These are words that encourage and motivate. Fourth, words of encouragement. Hebrews 3, 12-13, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any, any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so at this point, we're seeing a pattern, right? All of these words that bless overlap in their common goal of, of bringing people, uh, good people, to a place of being built up and strengthened. They work together to accomplish happiness of those who, of those who receive, them, receive them. Words of exhortation give direction toward the good. Number five, words of kindness. And be kind to one. We're going to get to this text next week, or, or yeah, next week. And be kind to one another. 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We've all been sad. We've all been depressed, discouraged, mistreated. We've all known the power of a kind word. Kind words show concern and care and attentiveness toward those who suffer. We might be tempted to think that our words can't make a difference, but if we are, we would be mistaken. Even when people have sinned, even when they've sinned against us, kind words bring blessing. Number six, words of truth. Yes, in my inmost being, Yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak the right things. Proverbs 23:16. Jesus said, "Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth." Words of truth set us free. Jesus is the truth, and so words of truth given in the right way are blessings. Now you can speak the truth in an unloving way. Paul says earlier in Ephesians 4, "Speak the truth in love for the good of the hearer." In such cases, when, when uh, truth is spoken just to wound, you know, then that's, that's harmful. That's not helpful. But truth and words, truthful words that bless are given in a different context. Ephesians 4, 16 through 17, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ Number seven, words of comfort. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 In times of sadness and sorrow and grief and disappointment, we often feel helpless. But God has given us a kind, a kind of salve that when used wisely can bring real comfort, real blessing. And you must have had a really hard day today. I'm sorry. Can I pray for you? When we bring God's word, or words of kindness or encouragement or words of truth, we remind one another of what we already know but we need to hear again. Sometimes the impact or effect of those words comes at a moment, at that moment, but sometimes they might come a little bit later down the road. Praying with someone, by the way, is a great way to bring words of comfort. The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Make your request known to God. How about when a quarrel is starting to get going at your house? What if someone had the courage to call for prayer before you talk? Let's get God in on this discussion. Let's make sure we remember He's here, that He's listening, that He makes the standards and the rules, that it's His glory that, is, that matters, not my glory. Number eight, words of grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, grace always involves giving something that is not deserved. You might be tempted to use other words that would not be a blessing, but you, being like Christ, know better. Paul instructs us, let your speech always be seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, excuse me, always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up angry. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of a fool spews forth foolishness. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And that's pushing it, isn't it? Doesn't just say bite your tongue or don't 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 respond with a curse. It says respond with a blessing. Peace is something the Bible says that has to be pursued, hot pursuit. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which we may edify one another. And then nine. One of my favorites. Words of reconciliation. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This brings blessing and happiness to everyone. Go, speak, bless. Words of reconciliation are some of the most powerful. How much of a blessing is it to hear the words, Your sins are forgiven. These are words that take away the enmity and the strife. These are magic words. And finally, What's the reason he gives? I'm just going to summarize this for now. We're out of time. That it may impart grace to the hearers. Stop talking with corrupt words. Start talking with edifying words so that you can impart grace to the hearers. There is an assumption that those who receive our edifying words might not deserve them, but should receive them anyway. How often are we waiting on the other person to do the right thing? You know what? God could crush us every time. He wins every argument. Ephesians 2, 4-7 told us this. But God, and he's already talked about our transgression and we're children of wrath. God had every reason to crush us. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together. There's edification, right? And made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your promises and for your example. How you loved us in spite of us. When we were talking back and being rebels and cursing and being foul, you reached down 
and pulled us out of that pit and were kind to us. Lord, help us with our mouths, with our hearts, in living with one another, with our families, with our neighbors, be examples of that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a parallel passage that Paul has in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, where he writes about the character of the new man. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Can you imagine if this was the prevailing rule at your house? Just that passage, or the passage we read today in Ephesians 4. This is how the booths handle conflict. Put your name in there. This is how we promote loving communion. This is how we pursue peace. This is how we demonstrate that we are the elect of God. Now there is some practical Calvinism. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. O Lord, what comfort, what assurance, what blessing, what boldness comes from knowing that you have given your Christ to the world and also given him all authority in heaven and on earth, that you have committed all judgment and rule to him, indeed, that he is the only mediator between you and us. You have given us a great prophet. His word shall not return to him empty, but shall accomplish that which he pleases and prosper in the thing to which he sends it to do. Bring to our minds your word so that we can answer the evil one and resist temptation. You have given us a great high priest. He is surely a merciful and faithful high priest and is available to men as mediator, intercessor, and help in trouble. Since he partook of our very nature, he knows the trials and temptations of this life. Let us be very aware today of the reality of Christ's true humanity And let us live in the strength of his aid. And you have given us a great king. He is the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Rule over us, O Christ, and cause us to acknowledge more and more your lordship over every area of our lives. For surely he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and you have given him the nations for an inheritance. May we live today in the light of who Christ is and and what he has done and what he is now doing, and what he will continue to do until his reign is recognized and acknowledged by all. Bless now our rest, our food, and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Now to him who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.